You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning, and his newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Always fun, Rick. Let's talk about some books today, and the first one we're going to talk about is Daniel Silva's The Defector. This is the ninth in a series featuring uh, Gabriel Allon. Have you read the other eight books? No, I've read about three or four of them. Uh, I came in late to this business, but uh, he certainly established a great franchise. Mm, yeah. Uh, Allon is, a, is a, uh, an Israeli secret agent. Most of his... Uh, most of his uh, days when he's not in the field, he spends uh, as an art restorer. So um, it's an interesting combination of um, art and uh, secret agenting, murder and you know, capturing uh, bad spies and rescuing good spies. Creativity and destruction all in one, eh? Yeah, I guess that's what Shiva does, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, this latest book is really a, a direct follow-on to uh, Moscow rules. Yeah, this defector, uh, Grigorov, whom he, a Russian, a big Russian KGB agent, whom he helped uh, sneak out of, out of Russia, who's been living in England, is suddenly snatched off the street in London. And Alon, who's working in Italy on a commission a, a restoration commission for the Pope himself is called back to action and uh, he gathers a team uh, much like the, the, the guys you see in uh, Spielberg's Munich and uh, they make a plan to uh, get this defector out of Russia again. Uh, of course, you might, as you might expect, a number of twists and turns and by the time uh, uh, Alon has got his plan together, uh, this the, the the defectors kidnappers who happen to be the henchmen of a very uh, you know billionaireish Russian oligarch uh, who has the the permission of the Soviet government to get this defector back um, is uh, they they've kidnapped they kidnap Alon's wife so both of the the, the defector and Alon's wife are holed up in the Russian uh, woods. And uh, he, so he's got a lot, of imp- a lot of motive to try to get these people out of Russia. Well, uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting about this guy's books is that um, it, it's a really, I think, an interesting vision of kind of the secret forces that shape our world, stuff behind the headlines. Yeah, yeah. A- and I think that's one of the, one of the real appeals. And he, he's a good prose writer, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he's terrific. He's... he's uh, you know, in terms of prose, I mean, you know, he's the standard for prose, I guess, for this kind of genre book in modern times is Le Carré. I mean, he's certainly not a prose stylist like Le Carré, but he, you know, he's not one of those third-rate spy writers who uh, don't know how to punctuate and and <laughs> s- and spell. Um, so, you know, he's got a, a, a swiftly moving paragraph that really zips you along even when he's writing about um, you know Alon's uh, desire for his wife and his thoughts about art restoration 
The thing is, uh, you know, we with the with the the end of the Cold War, uh, I think a lot of these guys uh, didn't know what to do. Le Carre has, you know, flailed away at various subjects, but mm. he's never written a novel as good as as any of the stuff of his that came out of the the old Cold War days. Alon uh, is a character who really gives us and you know takes us into the new period of. Uh, the struggle for uh, in, in a globalized world, um, and it's it certainly uh, well. I don't know. Can you call it pro-Israel? I mean, it certainly establishes Israel as a kind of you know, or at least the Israeli spies as some great heroes. Well, one of the things uh, that that I think is interesting too is that when these days when you're writing a book like this, you have to be pretty zippy and write it pretty fast because. You, there's a real uh, chance that the situation on the ground could yeah, completely you know, change right. by the time you get, reach publication. Yes, when, when, when Robert Stone's novel, The Damascus Gate, uh, well, when Stone was writing it, you know, there, there looked to be, a, you know, things are really terrible, mm. as usual, among the Israeli and Palestinians. Just about the, the time the book came out, it looked as though there was going to be peace between the Israelis and Palestinians, which is great for the world, but bad for a novel, <laughs> which happens to be about the struggle you know, between these two forces in, in Jerusalem. But then, you know, lo and behold, guess what? Things got really worse, and so the novel <laughs> came into a world that Stone had, a, you know, had, had conceived it to come into. Um, the thing is... Uh, about this kind of spy novel, it has to be convincing. Mm. Um, no matter what, and who knows what the real world of spies is like. We know the world of spies um, from from these novels, from Le Carre and from from Silva, from uh, you know a few other really terrific uh, people who write about uh, CIA and the you know, the British Secret Service and the and and, and the Israeli spy system. Um, who knows what the real world of the, the of spydom is like? Um, because these guys are so convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even Le Carre, he you know he had published his first novel was it this about this material? The spy who came in from the cold. I think he'd already been out of MI five for a couple of years. Uh, there was a woman named Stella Remington who was head of MI five up right. until about seven or eight years ago, and she published a novel. Uh, it was okay, but you know, you read it because she had just recently come out of running uh, mm. the the British uh, spy company, um, and probably even she was behind the times when she she uh, she produced this work of fiction. So I don't know. Maybe what, what's the law of spy thrillers? Uh, the book has to be utterly convincing in the way that it shows us the world of spies, whether that's the real world or not. Uh, I suppose in that way it's a little bit like science fiction, right? Mm. I mean, you can, you make a convincing novel about life on Jupiter or you don't, <laughs> whether there is life on Jupiter or not, right? Yeah, so, that's true. So the genre novel, although it partakes of special knowledge, finally it has to be a good book. Mm. And you, you mentioned the prose. I mean, the prose has to be convincing it you know and uh it can't be this breathless uh exclamatory crap that some of the third and fourth rate spy novels write well there's an element of travelogue in this book and in a lot of mm -hmm. the the spy novels and i think that that gives it that helps give it that uh feeling of verisimilitude that you know you 
he go these guys clearly must go to these places. Yeah, and, and yeah. Well, you know, um, um, uh, David Ignatius, who writes a terrific spy thriller these mm-hmm. days, uh, just sent his most recent book in Iran, and uh, he confessed uh, to me that he hadn't ever been to uh, eastern Iran, but he worked very closely with maps mm, and really? with uh, first-person accounts and with, uh, you know, he used Google Map. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it seemed convincing to me. Mm. Well, I, mean, I mean, that's the whole thing about fiction, right? Does everything in the novel, whether the novel's a mainstream novel or historical novel or, or genre novel, does it have to have happened to the, to the writer? Again, there is a kind of naive uh, apprehension that people have when they read fiction, mm-hmm. which is either this happened to the writer or I don't want to read it because it's not real, which goes, goes all the way back to the you know, old American neo-puritanical view that uh, anything that you read or look at has to be practical, mm. you know, whereas art is the opposite of the practical. So, I mean, you know, if a writer had to do everything that he or she put in, in, in the novel, I mean, I, I always say to my students, you either be in jail or dead. Or, or you'd have a time travel machine in. That's <laughs> right. You'd be yeah. Yeah. Uh, busy, busily investing in the stock market. Yeah, what's that, that old science fiction term? Extrapolation. I mean, that's what genre writers do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's what any writer does. I mean, was Shakespeare a woman? No. You know, he made Portia, right? And he extrapolated based on his experience of living with women, knowing women. Uh, writers lie writers lie for a living and they get paid for it and if they do it well enough they make us figure out they can tell the truth just be a little bit careful if you're married to one (laughs) I'll have to tell my wife (laughs) or maybe I'll have to tell her but coming back to this novel it's it's really uh, how do how do they say on our planet uh, a terrific read no it reads really well it reads Intelli- it's intelligent. It reads in a brisk fashion. It, the 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 conceit is convincing. Uh, Alon as a major character is is interesting, and um, and it's got quite a terrific plot. So you can't ask for much more in a genre novel. Now, you, our, our other novel we're talking about is Colin McCann's "Let the Great World Spin." Yeah, McCann is uh, an. Irish emigre, who has, I guess he's taken American citizenship now. I'm not not sure how long ago he did that, but he's an American citizen now. And and Let the Great World Spin is set in New York in 1974 when Philippe Philippe Petit made that wonderful tightrope walk between, or cable walk, tight cable walk between the towers of the old world trade center. Terrific documentary about that yes that recently came out yeah man I, on a wire man on wire yeah i i riveting <laughs> i watched it uh, as i was reading this novel because the the novel opens with with petite's walk and their interludes of the walk interspersed uh among the chapters that focus on a wide range of of characters uh in new york uh, life of the 70s um i mean just the movies frightening that first step out onto the cable between the buildings um 
What do they say about that first step on the moon? <laughs> one small step for a man, one giant drop in this case for <laughs> a man as well. One potential giant drop, right? Yeah. But he doesn't fall off. And, and after a while, it's just absolutely crazy. If you remember, he lies down on the cable. Oh, he does all sorts of really weird things. You yeah. just kind of go, what? I know. It's kind of extraordinary. So that kind of, that, that uh, cable walk, mm-hmm. uh, I hate to hesitate to use the metaphor leap, of the imagination, but that cable walk of the imagination stretches all the way through this novel, which is really a grand celebration of New York life at every level. And it, it and it, and you really feel this this Irish uh, immigrant's deep love. That's McCann himself, the novelist. His deep love for New York and American life uh, is you know the the, the the prose is ebullient and and the characters are. Extraordinary. From uh, the 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 main character's brother is a priest who lives among the the whores and and pimps and various other criminals in the South Bronx and uh, dedicates his life to these people and and uh, the number of these uh, number of these characters uh, we have uh, the whores, the pimps, the the priests, the and they're judges and 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 uh, thirty-eight year old grandmother who's a hooker and oh, wow she says amazing line I mean, he really gets the speech she says when I was seventeen I had a body that Adam would have dropped Eve for <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, this novel also takes place in terms of its Irishness it takes place over twenty-four hours um, and. Joyce-like in that regard. Yeah. Yes, Joyce-like. Ulysses was was mm-hmm. mentioned once in a while. And, yeah. and, and but so it's completely unpretentious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's really filled with the energy of deep affection for his new home place. And all the people, too. He loves his characters. Yeah. And, and no matter how strange or odd or some potentially off-putting they are, he loves them, and so we love them as well. Yeah. I could say that line again. When I was 17, I had a body that Adam would have dropped Eve for. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little bit, too, in terms of its plotting, a little bit like that old game of telephone. Uh-huh. In, in that, that it moves along from go one scene to another. One, one, one communication to the other, and then the message kind of slowly shifts as you go through it. Uh, one of the things that, that I really liked about it was that his... Um, when you're writing a novel that's set in the past, you can have some fun if you, since you know what the present's like. And uh, I loved his uh, blue box hackers. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. You know, the, the proto-internet, the internet before the internet. Right. <laughs> and he, he has a lot of fun in that way, you know, looking forward while he's, you know, ostensibly just writing in the past. Yeah, he's, he, he, I mean, he, he uses that, this period, to which I, I guess was the period in which he first came to New York himself, although I could be mistaken. Here's where the writer, the writer as liar, uh, makes himself felt. Uh, but um, he uses that uh, wire, you know, the high wire act to string along everything or cable along everything that he's interested in in New York life. And, and uh, so he kind of throws away the, the you know, the rational... Uh, progression that we expect in a novel uh, going from you know the high characters there's a judge and his wife who've lost a, their son in in, uh, in Vietnam 
and then these hookers and uh, pimps and cops and and uh, some characters in between. So he he really throws away, throws out the the formal uh, progression of the novel, and and so the whole book is a kind of high wire act, which I I tremendously admired, and some parts of it are really beautiful. Um, it's uh, you know he he really imbues his uh, old Irish blarney on the New York scene. It's a wonderful, wonderful amalgam. Now, we've talked about two books we do like. Uh -huh. Now, when you're in a bookstore and you're looking for a book, or even if you're just like me, you or me, and they are like firing books at you with a cannon. Um, the firing I, books from the cannon. Yeah, firing books from the cannon right at you, <laughs> right at me, and go, oh, my God, what is this slab yeah, on my I'm, I'm knowing that this year because I'm a judge for, uh, for the fiction National Book Award Prize in Fiction this year. So on top of my normal round of hundreds of books that I get for review, I'm getting everything uh, that every publisher uh, has ever imagined uh, a judge would want to read. Uh, so, you know, I really have to do uh, triage. My, my, the standard for me mm -hmm. is, uh, I'll, well, I'll give you the high example, which is um, Boswell recounts in, in, in his life of John Samuel Johnson a man coming up to Dr. Johnson and saying, Sir, you are an extraordinary man. How many books have you read in your lifetime? And Johnson says, Well, sir, now that I think about it, to look back on it, I suppose it's a comes close to 10,000 books, and the man is astonished. He says, you've read 10,000 books. That's extraordinary. How do you do it? And Johnson says, you fool. I don't read them all all the way through. <laughs> um, and then there's an X-rated story. Uh, you know, when you get on all these mailing lists for books that are published, uh, you can cut this out if you want to. But, oh, no. <laughs> uh, Betty Davis complaining about... Uh, working in a really horrible movie. She hates the movie while she's in the middle of it, and she says, I know who I fucked to get on this picture, but whom do I fuck to get off? <laughs> and, and as a book reviewer, I guess you've experienced that feeling yourself. Well, yes, but on the other hand, I don't mean to sound ungrateful because I love seeing all these new books that come in. I just can't imagine uh, not seeing all of these books come to my mail drop every, you know, every day, every week, every month, every well, year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. You get to see the whole range of uh, aesthetic and not-so-aesthetic endeavor that's going on in, in prose fiction and some nonfiction in the United States right now. Uh, so it's kind of, it's, it's glorious. So many people writing so many books in a time when... Uh, you know, it seems as though uh, the reading public is not expanding. I, I think Philip Roth once said, um, it's not that, uh, you know, the readership of fiction in America is shrinking. It's just not, it's not increasing commensurate with the growth of the population. Or with the growth of the percentage of people who are writing books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my greatest fear is that, you know, novel writing will become something like the writing of the sonnet, which is an honorable thing to do, to write a sonnet, but how many people read sonnets? Uh, th though there's no, you know, there's no popular drive to read sonnets anymore, but people seem to want stories. They want stories, and uh, they want to know what it's like to be in a story, what it's like to live in a story, because it reflects on 
what they sometimes, or what we sometimes dream is the story of our own lives, helps us to gain some ability to give shape and form and maybe sometimes even a soundtrack and set decoration for uh, what we imagine to be the story of our own lives. Um, but coming back to the quality of what comes out, um, you know, if you look at the range of American baking, right, most of it is crap. <laughs> yes. most, most of it uses lard or chemicals to produce something that resembles a cupcake or a, or a brioche or a, or, a, <laughs> or a bagel, but it doesn't taste good, right? So why should American, the, the production of American fiction be any better? It's Sturgeon's Law, as, <laughs> as you well know. Which was, Say it. Uh, well, somebody once asked why so much science fiction was crap. He goes, well, it's no surprise 90% of science fiction is crap. 90% of everything is crap. Yeah, <laughs> and it, right. And that's really true. Right. So, um, you know, what, you know, f folks who are voracious readers, as, as we are, we have to do is uh, f learn how to figure, figure out uh, what's n bad and what's good pretty quickly. You know, sometimes when I'm trying to get my monthly reviews together um, and I'm, you know, I'm looking at a hundred books and I'm going to choose four. Uh, I practice triage. I mean, I just can, you know, I confess to that. I'll pick up a novel and I'll read the first sentence or I'll read the first paragraph. And then I close the book because it doesn't appeal to me. It's a timeless test of the first page test is a great way for anybody who walks into a bookstore. You read the first page of a book and it doesn't grab you or it doesn't you don't like it, then hey, it's in out my, of there. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me a piece of advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. <laughs> or call me Ishmael. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I mean, there are some great books that are written in a crappy style. You know, I think of Dreiser, you know, one of the great writers of 20th century America. And uh, also... Not a great stylist, but... Compared to uh, Colin McCann. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's the wide range of of prose that you have to consider as you're reading through. But I think, you know, having read thousands and thousands of books, though, sir, not all of them all the way through, <laughs> I, I, I think I can recognize narrative drive mm -hmm. when I see it. So even if the prose is slightly dilapidated, if there's, an, there's narrative drive, I'll stick with the book. Mm. You know, I'll go further than the first sentence of the first paragraph. You know, I mean, the prime example being our, our uh, you know, Stephen King, who, uh, I'll quote Robert Penn Warren on, on Dreiser, and, uh, and I think it applies to King, you know, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, page by page, he's a terrible writer, but you have to read him by the scene. Um, mm. and, and when you, you know, when you can learn to do that, you know, he's terrifically entertaining. Well, I think King, too, is what I like about King is I think, for me at least, uh, he writes about something that I think very few people write about as well as he does, which is the, the boring middle class. <laughs> and, and, and he kind of gets to the heart of that. And maybe that those people aren't going to excite any elevated in prose. Uh -huh, that could be, yeah. And, and uh, he's also a, a man, too, for, you know, a wider vision, you know, not just, as you say, not, I think it's more than the scene. It's, you know, the entire novel will, will 
You know, I watched a Stephen King movie last night. I watched The Mist, and it is absolute crap. I mean, I wasted two hours of my life on this crap last night. Uh, you know, I hadn't slept the night before, and so I was in a kind of stupor as I watched it. But it is horrible. King just does not translate into the movies. Which, you know, I have this little law that I keep to myself, which is good book, bad movie. Bad book can become a great movie. Mm. And, and more often again than not, I think that law seems true. And certainly for King, you know, he has something on the page that you just can't translate into into a movie. I'm not sure what that is. What, what, what would you say it is, if you agree with me about this? I don't know. Well, I think uh, King, I actually like some of the movies that have been based on Stephen King's Which stuff. ones? Uh, <laughs> let me think. Um, well, I like the, the TV miniseries of uh, Tommy Knockers. I actually really liked, and I liked the book too, but that's because it was cheese through and through. It said, I'm, he said, essentially, I'm going to write a bad 50s science fiction horror flick. Mm -hmm. He wrote the book, and they made the movie pretty much mm -hmm. two-hour two, two episode of The Outer Limits or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is junk, you know. That's just junk. Let's... Um, Anyway, so King, on the face of it, would appear to be quite a bad novelist. And, you know, most of our, our colleagues uh, don't read him. Um, but it's funny, you know, what I started reading Sea Stories, you know, Horatio Hornblower. That's when I first started reading. And, and I started reading a lot of science fiction when I was a kid. And I've always kept that taste, mm -hmm. um, unlike a lot of my fellow writers um, who scorn it. And, I mean, I don't know what they do. Do they read Heidegger when they're not <laughs> reading uh, Proust? I mean, when I'm not reading Proust, I'm reading Stephen King or, you know, something like that. I see it as, uh, I s see it as a way of clearing my palate. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. Between the, you know, the wonderful courses of a, of a grand meal. So, uh, you know, there are just days when you don't, go from, you know, Colin McCann to Joyce Carol Oates, uh, immediately you read a Stephen King in between. Yeah. It's your, I think that clearing the palate uh, analogy is, is really good, and, and I think that's important because it, it gives you perspective on what's good in Colin McCann or Joyce Carol Oates. Mm -hmm. And if you read the two back to back, kind of it's a little bit, get, you get kind of wearying to tell the truth. You want to do a preview of the new Joyce Carol Oates next week? I'm, I've just started reading it. Uh, yeah, well, okay. Well, what, what can you tell me about it? Um, I've only read the first three pages. It's about a girl estranged from her father who's mad to love him, and uh, he kind of tantalizes her by paying visits now and then, set in upstate New York. And I realized as I was, uh, I guess if we talk about it, I'll repeat this, but... Um, you know, we, we usually talk about her using that upstate New York uh, empire as a kind of Faulknerian, Yachtenbatoffa County-like setting. I realized, as I started it this time, she's much closer to Thomas Hardy than she is to Faulkner, or as close to Thomas Hardy as she is to Faulkner. So she's, she's using region and landscape in the way that Hardy does, as much as she's being Faulknerian. And I have to say that 
I'll confess that one of the most disturbing and distressing science fiction horror stories I ever read was written by Joyce Carol Which Oates. story is that? It's in, a, I think it's in an anthology called Prime Evil, edited by Peter Straub, and I don't uh -huh. recall the title, but geez, it's just, it's mothers eating babies, and it's just way over the top, and very, I mean, really dark, really huh. disturbing. <laughs> I, I think of uh, Joyce Carol Oates as like a, a potentially great horror science fiction well, now writer. You've got, you, now you've got all your listeners wondering, what is the name of that story? I want to read it. Well, I will look it up and, and, uh, and put it in the uh, article when we publish the podcast so they can okay. go and find it because it's definitely over the top. Yeah. And not what you, not what you associate with Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. But let me just let me just refine this analogy a little further. In that, I'm not saying you eat uh, the best uh, chocolate chip cookie in the world and then you eat a Twinkie <laughs> when you when you go from reading really good fiction to junk to sort of clear your mind. Um, it's not like that. Uh, you know, science. I read really good science fiction, which there is in really its own good. way has mm -hmm. its own integrity mm -hmm. and its own aesthetic uh, uh, laws and rules that make it uh, really interesting and valuable and impressive. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. The books we talked about today were Colin McCann, Let the Great World Spin, and Daniel Silva, The Defector. Alan Jews is a book critic for All Things Considered, writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning, and his newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Again, my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.